You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. I'm so excited as we jump into week two of our prayer life teaching series. The goal of this series is to look at real prayers that people prayed in scripture and hopefully expand your prayer life. Uh, These are prayers that perhaps we don't typically go to. And today we're learning about the prayer of Uh, a Father's Day camping trip where we went with myself and my brother, uh, carried them some of the way, of course. And it went about as well as you would expect with a couple four-year-old kids. There's lots of crying and this is too cold and too dark and where do I go to the bathroom and all that sort of stuff. Uh, But it was ultimately a very powerful experience. And I think an experience that my daughter looks back on as one of her favorite all-time memories. But one of the things that made this trip very difficult was when we got back. So we, you know, we camped out overnight, ate breakfast, packed up the, the campsite. We got back to the vehicle. This is what we found. We, we found a, a, like, not just like a low tire, it was like a dead flat tire. And uh, at this moment, you know, we, this was like, okay, this is a great, you know, opportunity for me to show my daughter, I know how to change a tire, I can help solve this problem. And, uh, and we're, we're like miles away from cell service, we're up past Crouch, Idaho, if you've ever been to that area, Garden Valley area up there. And uh, the only problem is, this is my brother's vehicle, the tire iron that he had for his vehicle did not fit the lug nuts. And so I'm trying to get it on there, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is not going to be some quick fix. And so all of a sudden we go into problem-solving mode, and we have two four-year-old kids who think we're going to be heading back to civilization any moment. It's like, hey, you just stay in the car, you know, close the door. It's like, what? my brother and I are looking at each other, what do we do? And I start kind of going up to any hiker, day hiker, knocking on tent flaps, you know, and asking people if they have a spare tire iron, trying to sound as not creepy as possible. (laughs) Can I borrow your tire iron? And it's just like, and I'm doing this for literally hours. And no, it's like no one's like either they can't help or they don't have a you know the right tool or we try their tool and it doesn't fit. Meanwhile, my brother is like, well, I don't. I mean, I don't know what to do. Our wives are probably like worried about us at this point, and so he finds someone who's driving back into town, and he's like, well, I'll see you later. He hops in the vehicle. I'm there with the two kids, and I'm like, well, I hope I see him again, you know. And I'm I'm starting to think, like, are we gonna have to stay here another night? We don't have food. Do we live in the woods now? Like, what is this? And, uh, and eventually, my brother comes back with this guy. I'll show you another picture. And uh, I, st- I, I thought I had written down his name. I don't remember this guy's name. But he looks a little hardcore, doesn't he? Not to stereotype people, but he's got some tattoos of, like, skulls and stuff on them. It turns out he is hardcore. He, like, used to be in a gang and stuff like that. So my brother shows up with this guy. I'm like, this guy is safe, right? And Andrew's like, he's good. He's totally good. <laughs> And uh, he owns like an auto body shop up there and 
he drove up and he he brought you know his tools but the only uh the only uh socket wrench he was missing was the one we needed and i was like come on but anyways he had a hammer and so he's banging you know he, he got the tire changed for us and when we asked him like why did you do this you know, like he drove miles out of his way. He didn't charge us. He, you know, he was, he was super nice. And he said, well, you know, a few years ago, I found Jesus. And, uh, and the church family that I've been a part of has helped me through thick and thin. They've helped me move. They've supported me. They've prayed for me. And uh, he just said, you know, it's just, you know, when, you have, when you've been shown that kind of grace by God, you have to show that kind of grace to other people. The reason I share that story to you, yeah, it's not powerful. And we made it out. We made it back from the woods. And uh, is that is a story that clearly demonstrates mercy. Because what mercy is, essentially, is you find yourself in a place where you're truly helpless. You're hopeless. You have no ability, literally no ability, to get your way out of the situation that you found yourself in. And maybe you even put yourself in that position. And so you have no hope other than to cry out for someone else mercy. Would you show me mercy? And in this moment, God used a stranger to show us mercy and to help us. And this is really the kind of prayer that we're going to be learning how to pray. And I think specifically in evangelical Christianity, we don't do this prayer very well because we don't really understand our sins. We don't really spend, I would say, enough time or give enough thought to the severity of our sin. So last week, we looked at the, the, the prayer of tears, learning to, learning to weep, and we talked about three different things that we can learn to bring uh, to God with our tears, suffering in the world, pain in our own lives, and interceding on behalf of others. Or there's one other category of prayer of tears that I intentionally didn't address last week, and that's learning to pray with tears over your own sins to grieve your own brokenness before your Father in heaven. And so really, I know last week was pretty heavy, and a few people were like, well, this week will be a lot lighter than last week. And I was like, well, I wouldn't count on it. What we're going to do is our main teaching text, you're going to get kind of a two-for-one today, kind of two sermons for one, is Psalm 51. But we're not going to get to Psalm 51 for a little while because Psalm 51 is the prayer. It's the prayer for mercy written by King David. And yet there's so much context that is sets up this psalm that I want to spend really the first half of our sermon today really exploring what I'm going to call the anatomy of sin. If you love taking notes, you, you can go ahead and write down a list, 1 through 11, okay? <laughs> 11 different stages on the anatomy of sin, and this comes from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. You can go back, you can explore it more later, you can read the full story later, but I want to kind of move as quickly as I can through the setup to get us to Psalm 51, because if we just jump into Psalm 51 without the setup, without the context, it's not going to be as full or as rich. And this is really a story that takes place during the height of King David's reign. He's the most powerful man in the kingdom of Israel, and yet this is also where we see him fall into some of the deepest sin in his life. 
And this is a story for us, even as a follower of Jesus, maybe a longtime follower of Jesus. This is a lesson in just how far even a man or a woman after God's own heart can fall, lest we become unaware of the severity and the seriousness of sin and temptation. So let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, the first stage on these, this anatomy of sin is compromise. The story begins with uh, King David in 2 Samuel 11 verse 1. It says, in the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David remained at Jerusalem. What is David? David is the? King. He's the king. Where are kings supposed to be? At, at battle. David's not where he's supposed to be. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And this is really where I believe all sin ultimately begins. It begins with compromise. It begins with being in a compromising situation in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I just want to say this to you. Maybe for you, you, you've struggled with the same old temptation time and time and time again, the same old sin time and time and time again, and you've never removed yourself from compromising situations. If, you, if you've struggled, and you're just honest with yourself, I've struggled, if you're like, I've struggled with drunkenness, you don't need to walk down the beer and wine aisle at the grocery store to see what's in stock. You don't need to put yourself in that situation. Uh, if you're dating someone and you're, you're wanting to remain pure before marriage, you don't need to watch Netflix in a dark basement by yourselves for hours on end. Does that make sense? Like, there are certain situations that you may not have sinned yet, does that make sense? But it's only a matter of time. If you're in a compromising situation, it's only a matter of time. If you put yourself in those situations time and time and time again. So David's story begins, 2 Samuel 11, with compromise. Compromise ultimately leads to temptation. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, verse 2, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So this, yeah, this is Bathsheba, and it just like sometimes temptation just kind of pops up. Right? You happen upon a temptation. And yet, we have to remember is while temptation might seem totally random to us, there is a tempter. You know that, right? That the devil, his goal is to get people to sin. Like that's his initial thing in Genesis chapter 3, providing and making temptation seem appealing to us. And there's peer pressure from the world, peer pressure from friends who don't know Christ yet, and there's the enemy, there's a spiritual battle. And so while temptation might just pop up, we have to recognize, do you think the devil wants King David to sin? Yes. Obviously he does. And so temptation, it's not like a if it'll come, it will present itself. Temptation leads to the third stage, which is entertaining the sin. They're entertaining the sin means this in 2 Samuel 11, verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. So really, there's two paths. Oh, I just saw a naked woman on top of a rooftop. What should I do? Close your eyes. Run away, right? right. But he actually sends his messengers to find out more. You tell me something about that woman? I just want to find out. I just want to get her, her details. I just want to follow her social media profile. I just want to know what the story is. And this is the idea of entertaining sin. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives us a master class on the nature of sin. And he says it's not just the external actions that are sinful. Go ahead and read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. It's possible to sin even in your heart. It's not just, well, I, I didn't commit murder, but you're harboring bitterness and hatred. He's like, that's, just, that's sin. 
Well, I didn't commit adultery, you know, but you're having lust in your heart. That's, Jesus says that's sin. So that really leads us to ask the question, well, what's the difference? And I would say the difference is there's a difference between experiencing a temptation and entertaining a temptation. It's like you can't prevent someone from knocking on your door, but you can prevent them from coming inside. Does that make sense? So if the temptation is the sin that's crouching at your door, you have an option. Am I going to let it in? Come have a seat at the table. Here's some light snacks. And you're kind of fan- you're playing with the fantasy. You're dwelling on it. You're, you're allowing it to fester in your heart. That is what I believe Jesus is talking about. Matthew chapter 5, the sin of the heart, which takes place even before the external actions of sin. So if sin is crouching at your door, what do we do? We don't let it in. We lock the door. But eventually, if you entertain sin long enough, it will lead to the fourth stage, which obviously is sin. Sin, number four. In 2 Samuel 11, verse four, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. I mean, this is predictable. You knew it was heading this way, right? You don't send a messenger to find out what her story is. And by the way, at this point in time, the messengers reported back to David, she's married already to one of your most loyal soldiers, Uriah, Uriah, who's, guess where Uriah is? He's on the front lines where he's supposed to be. And so David, he he goes ahead, he sins, and in this moment, even if David doesn't feel guilty, because evidently he doesn't, he doesn't think there's anything wrong. I mean, he's kind of the most powerful man in all the land, and this is just his one-night stand. This is his moment of instant gratification. Even if he doesn't feel guilty, he is guilty. Do we see that from the outside? He is. Well, sin inevitably leads to number five, which is consequence. There is no sin without consequence. In 2 Samuel eleven five, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And David is probably like, how could this be? And it's predictable. It's pre- these stages we have to recognize are predictable. And so there's a common excuse that I often hear people talk about when they talk about these sins that they're entertaining and these temptations. There, there's two th- phrases I hear time and time and time again. Nobody's getting hurt, and nobody's going to know. Those are the two. Well, no, it's like, it's just me. It's just my thing. It's just my sin that I'm dealing with. And if, if it's not hurting anyone, and if no one's ever going to find out about it, and the reality is, this flies against the face of a universal principle that God wove into the fabric of reality. You reap what you sow. That is a more binding principle than Sir Isaac Luton's laws, okay? You reap what you sow. God has woven that in the fabric of reality. It's inescapable. In this life or the next, you reap what you sow. And so there's sin. There will certainly be consequence. Well, how does David respond to the consequence? Number six, he responds by trying to cover it up. And so what David does is he invites Uriah home from the battle in 2 Samuel 11, verse 13. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch where the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. Do you see what David's doing here? Let's get Uriah back so that he can sleep with his wife, so that he can think the baby is his. No harm, no foul. Nobody's going to know. Nobody's getting hurt. You see that? The only problem is Uriah is so dedicated to the cause that he's not even going to go home. 
how can I go home to my own house and to my wife when all my brothers in arms are out there at the battlefield? And so Uriah demonstrates a greater righteousness and honor than the king of Israel. And so what, you see what David does? Now he's getting him drunk. You see how all these Ten Commandments he's breaking, by the way? Adultery, like he's, he's lying, he's coveting, adultery. Like these are, the Ten Commandments are like the most basic moral laws. And the king of Israel is breaking them all. He's trying to cover it up. And just like us, just like a child who's created a mess, and you're like, clean up that mess, and they try to clean it up, and you're like, never mind. <laughs> Because you're just making it worse. I remember one time when I was a kid, I, I, my, my uh, dad gave me some incentive to clean my room, and I literally put everything underneath my bed. And I, like, untucked the blanket and, like, draped it down to the floor, and I was like, yes. And uh, he eventually found me out on that. that you know, it didn't work out. But it's like this whole idea of covering up. You cannot cover up your sins. So this inevitably leads to the seventh stage, which is death. When it's evident that it's not going to work to cover up her sins, what David does is he sends Uriah back to the battle with a letter that seals his own death. Look at this in 2 Samuel eleven fifteen. Set Uriah, this is a letter that which would go to Joab, the commander of the army. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And Joab does as he is ordered. And now David has blood on his hands. And we have to recognize that sin always, always, always leads to death and destruction. It's the ultimate consequence, and it's also the very first consequence that we know about sin. In Genesis 3, what does God say to Adam and Eve? Do not eat from this fruit lest you die. It's the, it's the original consequence for sin. Death and destruction. Well, how does David respond to this? With blindness. Stage eight is blindness. He still can't see it. Not physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. He hardens his heart. And what happens is, God has to address the spiritual blindness. David doesn't see murder, adultery, coveting, getting a guy drunk, lying about it. Like, this is like... The list goes on and on and on at this point. It's quite evident and obvious to us reading this story from the outside, but to him, he's totally blind to it. And what happens is God has to send the prophet Nathan to confront David. And what Nathan does in a prophetic fashion is he tells David a parable, a made-up story that David thinks is a real story. And so Nathan tells him this very simple story. Here's the gist of it, okay? You have a rich man, lots of sheep. You have a poor man, one sheep. Now David, before he was a king, before he was a warrior, he was a shepherd. So he knows about sheep. And he's like, oh, good sheep story. I love a good sheep story. <laughs> so this is, this is good. He knows his audience. So in the story, the rich man has a visitor come visit him. And he says, well, I don't want to slaughter one of my sheep, my countless sheep that I have. So I'm going to steal this poor man's sheep, slaughter that, and feed my visitor. And this is David's response. He's like, oh, no, you didn't. This is what happens. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And let's, let me just ask you this question. Whose sin upsets you the most? Yours or your neighbor's? Or your family members. This is a telltale sign of spiritual blindness. 
when the sins of others are the law, it's the log in our eyes that prevents us from seeing our own sin, our own guilt before God. It's a telltale sign of spiritual blindness. And David is so angry, and this anger towards the sin, it's a made-up story. A sheep. It's a sheep. Like, not a human who died and was murdered. Not someone's wife that was stolen. This is a sheep. And yet David is so angry. He's like, you know what that person deserves? The death penalty. Capital punishment. And then, of course, the prophet Nathan responds. The ninth stage is conviction. And he says this famous line, you are the man. Like, not in a positive sense. This is like, you are that man. You, and this is truly what conviction is. It's a pronouncement of guilt. It's a recognition. I mean, that's like if somebody's a convicted felon, we would say like a judge pronounced them guilty. And we just have to recognize, even if you're saved, even if you're a follower of Jesus, if there's sin in your life, we need conviction. And conviction can come from really two places. It can come internally if our conscience is ready to have the Holy Spirit speak to us through his word or through prayer. Or we can have conviction, this is what I would call the hard way, from the outside, a prophetic voice. where We're not getting the message on our own because our heart is so hardened towards our own sin that God must send a prophetic voice. Maybe today I'm that prophetic voice for you. I don't know. But sometimes we need someone to wake us up. You're that man. You're that woman. If there's sin in your life, and what conviction is, it's a terrifying thing, but it's a beautiful gift because it tells you that God has not given up on you. He still cares about you and wants you to be sanctified, wants you to be saved, wants you to be forgiven, wants you to experience his mercy. What would you rather have God do? Give up on you? I guess I'll just let you continue in your sin. But conviction is a beautiful, beautiful gift, and it's a necessary step along the process that brings us to stage number 10, which is repentance. Look at how David responds. At any of these steps, you can go one of two different directions. And in this, in, in this stage, David, unlike his predecessor, King Saul, who we know what Saul would do, he would make excuses. He would try to self-justify. He would try to explain himself. He would try to weasel his way out of it, not David. This is ultimately, even though David sinned in some terrible ways, what shows evidence that he's still a man after God's own heart. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. He just owns it. No excuses. Repentance involves first confession, which is saying, yes, I did sin. I, I agree with that. I am that man. I am that woman. I did wrong. But then it also involves a resolution to change. It's like, I did it, and I'm going to do it again. It's not that. It's, yes, I've sinned against the Lord, and, and, and I genuinely, I will resolve to not do this Again, you have intention in your heart to begin to, it's like a line in the sand, intention in your heart to start following God. And there is no forgiveness without repentance. But when we truly go before God with a heart of repentance, look at what happens next. This is powerful. And this is the 11th stage. This is what Nathan says in 2 Samuel 12, 13 and 14. The Lord has also put away your sin. This is the immediate response. And you shall not die. Nevertheless, by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, and the child who is born to you shall die. Now this it seems shocking to us. Is this forgiveness or is this judgment? Answer, yes. It's both. I mean... 
God forgives David in this moment, but he also deals out a consequence. He also deals out his divine judgment. And in these moments, we must recognize that God's justice is always true. God's judgments are always righteous, even if, they, even if it shocks us at times. It's, it is possible to, by the way, simultaneously be forgiven and still have to deal with consequences. Do you realize that? Years and years ago, uh, I had a, a guy who confessed something to me that was very, very heavy. I don't want to get in, I don't want to overshare anything, but very, very heavy. And I was able to speak words of grace and forgiveness. God, for, God, this is, God forgives you for this, but you have to turn yourself in. And I, what, there was forgiveness, and I also, like, I walked him through a process of going and turning himself in to the law for that. And I think this is a situation where we see both of these things in tension. What this also reveals to us is that God doesn't just forgive our sins by waving a magic wand. This isn't some Disney movie, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, sins are forgiven. There is a cost God's divine justice must be served. And we have to recognize as difficult that is, I think this actually informs and deepens our understanding of what forgiveness truly means. So that's the anatomy of sin, okay? We haven't even gotten to our teaching text for today. Let's jump into it. Psalm chapter 51. This is an in-depth explanation of David's one line, I have sinned against the Lord. That's what we have recorded in 2 Samuel 12. This is really his prayer though, okay? This is his prayer that he wrote in that season. This is what it says. Psalm 51, starting in the first verse, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. The root of the Hebrew word for mercy means to bend or stoop in kindness to an inferior. I love that. I mean, think about that story with this stranger who's literally stooping down to change the tire on my brother's vehicle. It's this idea of we are God's inferiors. And often, I don't know about you, but often we kind of can be casual in our uh, approach to God Almighty. And we kind of come to the table in our prayers thinking we have some bargaining chips on the table, thinking we can kind of twist God's arm or change his mind. And this is a recognition that we must become. Like Jesus says in Matthew 5, the very first opening line of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A prerequisite for salvation, I would say, is becoming poor in spirit. Because poverty of spirit is a recognition, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless on my own. I need mercy. And you can't save someone who doesn't think they need saving. You can't. Because there needs to be some kind of openness that I believe only comes from getting to this place where you are willing to cry out to God for mercy. And too often, I think we have these two extreme perspectives on sin. I want to show you a chart that I think might be helpful to you. On the one hand, we, we sometimes end up with this shallow perspective on sin. And it's really this kind of casual or flippant or it's this idea of it's not that bad. My sin's not that bad. And typically what we do is we compare our sin to the sin of someone else. And we kind of minimize our own sin, our own guilt, our own responsibility, and we maximize the sins of others. 
how could that person kill a sheep, right? You see what's happening there? He, David, in this moment, has a shallow perspective of his own sin. I mean, at least I'm not a murderer. At least I'm not, you know, at least I haven't killed anybody, in, in, except in David's case. He had, right? And so we have this very shallow perspective. But if you have this, it's not that bad view of your own sin. It leads you to this place where you don't need mercy, you're never going to pray for God's mercy if you, if you have this shallow perspective of your sin. But on the flip side, there's another extreme that I find a lot of people fall into, and that's the idea of shame. Developing this shame-based identity. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. It's not, I did something wrong. It's there's something wrong with me. And it becomes who you are. Your whole identity is based around, uh, based around shame and based on sin. And it leads you to a point where you're not going to cry out for mercy in that situation either. Because guess what? You don't feel like you deserve mercy. You don't feel like God could show you mercy. I don't know if God could save someone like me. And in that case, we're kind of, that, that is in some ways a form of arrogance, we think it's humility, but it's actually a form of arrogance. You see that? I'm such a bad sinner, God couldn't even save me. Really? You think, you are a, you think you're a worse sinner than God is a forgiver? Than God is a great forgiver? Than God is rich in mercy? Man, you think your debt of sin is greater than God's riches of mercy? I think that's a form, it's a kind of a twisted form of arrogance. Now the reality is though, for you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've been saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, there is, you've been set free from sin and from shame. We talked about this before, that really following Jesus is living out of that new identity. You're a new creation. You're forgiven, you're redeemed, you're a child of God. But if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you have this kind of shame that you're carrying around, I'm here to tell you, the reality is, theologically speaking, before Christ, there is something wrong with us. There is something wrong with us. And you can't just try harder to be righteous and become righteous. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us we are by nature children of wrath. But because of Christ's work for you on the gospel, if you would surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you can go from being a child of wrath to being a child of God. Isn't that powerful? And I'm going to tell you today, today can be the day that you can be set free from that shame-based identity. But if you're already in Christ, there's no place for shame in your life. Okay, so if it's not a shallow perspective of sin, it's not a shame-based identity, what is it? We must recognize that our sin is always serious. Serious. This, this says that sin is bad. And then if I've sinned, I've done something wrong. I've offended the almighty God of the universe. And there is a place, even if you're in Christ, even if you're saved, you know you're going to heaven, you stand in grace, there is a place for recognizing you can still feel bad for sinning. And I think it's appropriate. I think it's appropriate not, not to carry around shame, but even to feel guilt at times. And to recognize that in some ways to just overwrite those things and not to think about those things leads us automatically to a shallow perspective of sin. So to, to have this serious perspective of sin, it leads you to pray the prayer, Lord have mercy. Do you have a perspective of your own sin, even as a follower of Jesus, that leads you to go back to God for mercy time and time and time again? To go back to the foot of cr the cross time and time and time again and to experience God's grace, his goodness, his forgiveness every single day.
it makes me think of the simple prayer that uh, Jesus told us this parable in Luke chapter 18 and verse 13 about a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee didn't think he needed a savior. So he goes into the temple. He prays this prayer. Lord, I'm so great. I'm so righteous. You're lucky to have me, aren't you, Lord? Like, that's his prayer. And then you have this tax collector in Luke 18, 13. It says this, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. That's the typical posture for prayer, by the way, in the, in, in, the, in the ancient world. You know, we close our eyes to focus, and that's totally fine. But typically, you know, when you pray, you, you kind of look up because you're addressing your Father in heaven. But he can't even do that. His face is downcast. His countenance has fallen. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you want to know how Jesus ends that parable? He says, which one of those two men do you think went away from the place of worship justified? The man who cried out, for mercy. I want to teach you a very simple prayer for mercy. You can, you can memorize Psalm 51. You can pray through Psalm 51. There's power in that. I want to give you a three-word prayer for mercy. Ready? Lord, have mercy. Can you say that with me? Lord, have mercy. When you can't find the words to say, you can pray that three-word prayer. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Because mercy is not just something you need the moment you get saved. It's something that you live on, that you live from, that you keep going back to time and time again as often as you need it. Continuing through our text in Psalm 51, verses 3 through 6, David writes, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Now, this is a bit of hyperbole. We have to remember that this is, uh, did David only sin against God? No, he's sinned against many people in this situation, right? And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, your delight, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Those lines that David says, he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And I think this is a very significant issue in, I would say, the American church or the evangelical church. We just, is your sin ever before you? Do you know your transgressions? I mean, how much, just be honest, like how often do you really think about the sins in your life, even the hidden sins, even the sins of the heart, even in the the messed up motivations? And I don't know about you, but the people I know who are the most sanctified, the most like Christ, they're the most aware of their sins. This is uh, John, the Apostle John, writing to brothers and sisters of the faith. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, he says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And I think we have to just get back to a point where we, we begin to go before God and recognize this daily prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, I'm not saying that we go in and out of salvation, like I'm not saved because I sin and then I get saved again or anything like that. We stand securely in the grace that God has shown us, and yet we must get to the point where we recognize, is there anything in my life that has offended God? Because sin is always serious, and it still damages people. Do you know that? Sin damages your soul. It damages your relationships. It damages your relationship with God. For many people, they're like, well, I don't know. I I don't feel like I'm not experiencing God. Is there unconfessed sin in your life? Is there stuff that hasn't been dealt with? We know this in every human relationship. When there's distance in a relationship, I I 
haven't spoken to that person in a while. I, like, I can't be in the same room as that person because there's, just, there's something there. there that needs to be addressed and dealt with in order for that relationship to be fully restored and reconciled. I want to show you another couple charts here. This, this first one shows all the different uh, steps or stages that we looked, looked at. And just for clarity, I'm not saying you have to go through all 11 stages to get to the end, okay? That, in fact, that's the opposite point I'm trying to make. Because if you just kind of go through all of these, compromise, temptation, entertaining, sin, consequence, cover-up, death, blindness, you're going to be making matters worse. The longer that you wait to cry out to God for mercy, the worse the situation becomes. That's one of the great lessons we learned from David's sin. In fact, here's a better chart for us. You can return to God with repentance any step along the way. Even to steps where you haven't like actually committed the sin yet. And for some of you, if you've been following Jesus for decades, maybe you're at that point in your life where, where you're not like, where it's like kind of hard to figure out like, well, how did I sin this week? Was there anything I did that was, you know, like I, I didn't steal anything to my knowledge this week. I didn't really like lie. But are there any like things in your heart or even compromising situations that if you continue to camp out in those situations long enough, you will sin. Eventually, you can turn from those things and experience God's grace and his mercy. The sooner that we pray for mercy, the better. Continuing in Psalm 51, verse 7, David writes, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Really one of the questions when we're talking about sin and forgiveness and mercy is how do you know that you're forgiven? How do you know? What's your guarantee? And for many people, we don't have a great answer to that question. And really, it's based on, you know, I, I'll be forgiven as long as I don't ever do it again. And what's that basing your experience of forgiveness off? It's basing it on your own performance, on your own willpower, on your own righteousness. And that's kind of mixing up what forgiveness and mercy actually is because we're poor in spirit. We're beggars when we come before God. And so what David does here is he, he uses this, uh, this, this beautiful metaphor of God purging us or purifying us with hyssop. Now, hyssop is a plant in the mint family. Apparently, I had to look up, like, you know, I was doing some study on hyssop this week. And it has these little fibers on it that makes it ideal for holding water. And it was used in some purification rituals. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 14. If a leper was, uh, had leprosy, they had to go around and say, unclean, unclean. And they couldn't be in other people's presence. People couldn't touch them. You couldn't live inside the community. But if, you were, if your uh, physical affliction went away, you were healed. You weren't actually reintroduced into society until you went before the priest. And you brought a couple sacrifices, and you sacrificed a bird, and it mixed, the blood mixed with the water, and they would take a hyssop branch, dip it, and sprinkle seven times. And then you would go home, and you would wash, and that was your guarantee. I'm not, I know I'm not just physically healed, but I'm pure. 
I'm cleansed. You want to know what else a hyssop branch was used for? You can read about this in Exodus chapter 12. The tenth plague, where the idea of the Passover comes from. The guarantee where the Israelites would slaughter a lamb and they would paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. You want to know what they used to paint that blood? Hyssop. And it's the idea that God would show mercy on all the households who are standing under the blood of the sacrifice. This is what this picture shows us. It shows us how God shows us mercy. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. Somebody say faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so this is really what our faith is in. Our faith is in the God who has made a covenant with us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we have faith in God's faithfulness. That's what our faith is in ultimately. Our faith and our hope is not in our own performance. It's not in our own ability to not sin or not fall into those temptations. Again, our faith is in God's faithfulness. He is faithful. He is righteous. He can cleanse us. He's the one holding the hyssop branch. Do you see that? And he sprinkles us with the precious blood of his son. And we've been baptized in the waters, cleansed. And we've been declared by the God of the universe to be righteous in his sight. Do you have the joy of salvation? And, and, and today, I just want to invite you, if you've never received that joy, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the, Jesus is the son of the living God. He died in your place. He rose back from the grave and he's willing to forgive your sins. Would you cry out to him, even in a simple prayer today, Lord, have mercy. Would you cry out to God for mercy? And I just want to encourage you, if you've ever felt like, man, I don't know if I'm good enough, maybe I don't, like, my, I don't know about my sins, or this, that, or the other. If God can forgive David, God can forgive you. God can forgive you because he is rich and abundant in mercy. And I want to invite you to experience this cleansing and washing that Jesus instructs us to do called baptism. In Acts chapter 22, verse 16, the Apostle Paul is sharing his testimony. He talks about uh, the man Ananias who God sent to baptize him. And he says this, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now baptism isn't you washing away your own sins. It's a work that God is doing in you. But it really, it is that moment where you're calling on his name. Because we believe there is no other name under heaven or on earth by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. And I would just pose that same question to you. Why do you wait? What are you waiting for? Forgiveness is available to you. You can be free from shame today. Why do you wait? And I want to encourage you, if you've never been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, find out more information online, hillcityboise.org slash baptism. We would love to celebrate with more people declaring their faith in Jesus in this way. Let's finish off our text. Psalm 51, verse 13. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. I hope, that, I hope that that happens today, that God is drawing sinners and transgressors back into a relationship to him. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. 
You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What David says here is so powerful. He talks about the idea of repentance taking place before we return to worship. And that's really what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. He says, hey, if, if you're going to the place to worship to bring your sacrifice to the altar and you've sinned against a brother, leave your sacrifice at the altar and first go be reconciled and then come back to worship. Because what happens is when we're quick to enter into worship with unconfessed, with hidden sin in our lives, that leads us to a life of hypocrisy. But if we're quick to go to repentance and experience God's grace and mercy, that leads to true worship that God desires. And so what David is saying is like, listen, before I I bring any sacrifices to you, the first sacrifice that God is looking for today from you is a broken heart, is to be willing to take your sin seriously to grieve those sins and how they've broken the heart of God, how they've harmed and damaged others, how they've harmed and damaged your own soul. And once you've gone to that place, experienced God's mercy, then return to worship. Then return to worship. And so we're going to have an opportunity to just spend some time in confession and prayer. If you're a follower of Jesus, we have an opportunity to take the Lord's Supper during this time. This is one of the reasons why I believe Jesus wanted us to take the Lord's Supper consistently so that we would go back and remember the cost of forgiveness. It cost God his one and only son's life on the cross, his body broken and his blood shed. If you're a follower of Jesus and you want to participate during this time and you didn't get the elements, just raise your hand and Usher can get you those. But even if you're not participating in the Lord's Supper, you can spend this time just in confession in quiet prayer before God, maybe even asking the Holy Spirit, God, would you show me the ways that I've sinned against you? Spend these moments in prayer, in reflection, and even if you need help focusing during this time, would you pray that short prayer quietly to yourself? Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy and have faith in God's faithfulness, that he is rich in mercy and willing to show you grace, to show you forgiveness, to shower his love upon you afresh this morning. Take a few moments of prayer, confession, and reflection, and be willing to go before God with your broken heart. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.